Hey there, welcome to Groundbreakers, a bi-weekly podcast that explores transformations in where, how, and why we work, and the intersection of DEIB within our workplaces and spaces. I'm your host, Shelley Wright, Chief Diversity Officer at Unispace. With each episode of Groundbreakers, I'll be talking to fascinating people, all of them groundbreakers in their industries. We won't have all of the answers, but we'll have some provocative and pretty entertaining conversations. We're going to have a lot of fun. We have an exciting show for y'all today. We'll be talking to Anna Isaacson. She is the Senior Vice President of Social Responsibility for the NFL, and I am truly so excited to speak with this woman. Welcome to Groundbreakers, Anna. Thank you for having me. I know I could speak to you for hours, so let's dig right in. Um, There's so much I want to talk to you about, Anna. I mean, obviously, your job and the work you do is fascinating, but you're fascinating, Let me give our listeners a little background on you, Anna. As Senior VP of Social Responsibility for the NFL, Anna directs the league's social, charitable, and philanthropic endeavors, including how the NFL addresses social justice, domestic violence, sexual assault, and other critical societal issues. She also oversees the work of the nonprofit NFL Foundation, focusing on the development of a full range of education, training, and support programs relating to domestic violence, sexual assault and character education to reach both members of the NFL family and communities across the country. Anna has also led and developed countless programs and initiatives that we're going to dig into further. Wow, Anna, that's a lot. I you know, I think my first question is, do you think that you were born to do this work? That's a really interesting question. I actually haven't been asked that before. Um you know, I I think that there was sort of a, a a broader plan for me that I didn't know um, until I sort of found myself in this work. You know, I think early on, even as far back as high school, I knew I wanted to work in the sports field, but I was really never an athlete, um, but a fan and a, really a fan of the impact that sports have on culture and on society. And, uh, but I didn't know what to do with that from a job standpoint. Right. And so, you know, I thought I sort of other things came to my mind. I thought I was going to be a sportscaster. I thought I was going to be a journalist, writer. Um, and when I got to college, I kind of did everything I could to explore those options and had internships and did all sorts of things, took every class I could take, which weren't many on sports and wrote my thesis on baseball and did all of these things and ended up in a job post-graduation where I was essentially selling souvenirs for a minor league baseball team. And I was like, how did I get here? What am I doing? How, you know, this is not what I expected necessarily. Um, But over the next couple of years, the pieces actually started to come together in this really unbelievable, fortuitous way that really connected the dots for me and felt like there was something bigger going on that made it meant to be. You know, I was offered my first full-time job running a small baseball museum um, that celebrated the history of baseball in Brooklyn, particularly the history of Jackie Robinson and the Dodgers. And I only was offered the position because I was selling souvenirs for the team. And they like remembered from my resume that I was a history major and wrote my thesis on baseball. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, those things. And then that, um, that location, that museum actually became a, a cultural and community meeting space in Brooklyn. 
And I started leaning into more of the community work, um, which I realized really was my calling, you know, over time was to really use the platform as sport to give back, to unify communities, to bring people together. And I realized that growing up, I had my family and parents to look, you know, to look at as mentors who had been real, you know, charitable, philanthropic people giving up their time mostly. Uh, And I had done that myself. And and it sort of made sense to me after a few years that that's how I ended up. So, yeah, that's really it's interesting to me that you weren't really an athlete. I think you played, you know, on one ball team when you were young and that that you were able to identify early on that sports is cultural and sports is often, you know, the reason families gather and, um, you know, I grew up in Kansas City, um, mm. so, you know, there's not a lot to do in the Midwest except cheer for our Jayhawks, our Chiefs, and our Royals, which mm-hmm. which I proudly do. Um, but it's just, it's fascinating to me that um, that you kind of, you kind of took the, like a single lane um, to get where you are, and you kind of had to take the stops you took to get to get where you are. And um, it's, it's, a fast, it's a fascinating story. I know you grew up in Brooklyn. Um, I, I would love to know, aside from the fact that your parents were generous people and um, philanthropic, community-minded, giving up their time, what, what did they do for work? So uh, my mom was a school teacher. Uh, she was an elementary school teacher who taught basically every grade from kindergarten through sixth grade over the years. Uh, and, um, my dad and family are small business owners. We've got a a family, I would say stationary and office supply business in the family for, um, 95 years. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, really small business. When I say small business, I mean, you know, three to five employees Yeah, small, uh, but, hard work and perseverance. And, yeah. you know, my great uncle is in the business, my grandfather, my dad and his twin brother still run it. And, um, so, you know, that was ingrained in me early. And my mom, um, was really a huge sports fan and used to tell me stories about her and her dad and her brother going to baseball games and what that meant to her as a young girl. And so they started, my parents started taking me to, to baseball games and, you know, so it started, it was more historical for me, right? It, yep. it, it sort of was part of who I was and part of my family's history. Um, and, you know, my dad was a Brooklyn Dodger fan growing up. And uh, so, you know, it was just kind of with my family for a long time, even though I really didn't do anything athletic. Ever. Right. Yeah. Is it part of your family fabric? You know, I, w- I was present when my Kansas City Royals won the World Series a oh, few amazing. years ago, um, and I was one of the only few, uh, one of the only Kansas City Royals fans uh, among all of the Mets fans. And when when we won, and it was like we came back in the ninth inning and rallied, and it was like, oh, it was what it was kind of on brand for our season. That was kind of a, an amazing season. And my phone began to blow up, and it was my dad and my brother and my aunt and. Uh, my mom had just passed away, and I was really emotional. And I realized it's not just a game. This is my, you know, this this is how I've connected with my family, um, you know, my whole life. So I I I, I love the lens um, through which you you know you're seeing all this. Um, 
you know, I, I want there's so many great programs that you've driven, initiated, created. I want to ask you, the one that fascinates me the most is the Inspire Change um, initiative. I, if I'm, of course, correct me, but I believe the NFL has committed $95 million to, uh, is that right? 250 million now. Okay. Okay. I, I must have read an old article. Talk yeah, to me no. about we Talk to me about when, it. yeah, okay. When did that? Uh, when did y'all come to the table with with more money and to maybe you know why did that decision happen to essentially double down and maybe almost triple down? So the NFL is a multi issue league. We always have been. Um, we you know have been really advocates and stalwarts in the community for the entirety of our hundred year history, and that has taken us in many different directions, many different directions. Um, But a couple of years ago, we found ourselves um, in the middle of a conversation around social justice and our players and um, inequities in our society. And that was a conversation really led by NFL players who were using their voice and their platform to advocate, to make change, to protest. not only Colin Kaepernick, but other players that were working alongside him to really make change. And as a league, we met internally with owners, with other players, with our staff, with the commissioner, and really decided that, you know, as an American institution, which the NFL still is, and we're lucky to be one of the few cultural institutions left, that we really had a role to play in these issues that are really American issues, right? They weren't just yeah. athlete issues or NFL player issues. And so yeah. we really decided to invest and dive in to social justice and created uh, several programs, including launching the Inspire Change Initiative, which was really about breaking down barriers to opportunity and opening up access in the areas of education, economic advancement, criminal justice reform, and police and community relations. And we were doing this work, and then George Floyd was murdered uh, a couple of years later. So you and were doing the, the the initiative had begun prior to correct, George Floyd. Correct, yes. That's really interesting, yeah. So we had been doing the work. Um, George Floyd and that horrific uh, summer really happened. And we looked around and said, you know what, we could actually be doing more. And our players were pushing to do more. We needed to, I think we decided that we needed to have an always on initiative. We couldn't sort of be in this space sometimes. We had to be committed and in all the time. And at that point in, in June of 2020, we announced a $250 million commitment over 10 years to fighting social justice. And happy to say that we are very close to that uh, goal wow. sooner than I thought we'd be, but we're about six six years in to our work um, yeah. in this area, and we're, we're getting very close to that number. And that's really from the generosity of the league, owners, clubs, players, and it's really been unbelievable over the last couple of years to see the commitment that people have to working towards these issues, which are really complicated and even more complicated during the last couple of years during the pandemic. For sure. Yeah. I Two questions about that, Anna, that time when you had that that kind of reckoning internally that we can be doing more. 
will you t- will you tell me who was at the table at that time and what your what was your title at the time? Is it the same as it as it is now? Um, who who whose voices were weighing in and, and determined we need to be doing more? Uh, definitely. So so my title is the same as it was now. I actually went through my sort of career shift uh, in twenty fourteen. Uh, when we had another crisis on our hands, and that was a domestic violence crisis. And so at that point, we determined as an organization and really the commissioner determined that he, he, we needed to have a more robust, uh, social responsibility organization built out that was much more visible, that had, um, somebody who had a seat at the table, uh, with the other executives, uh, that we had to have its own standalone department and budget. And so since 2014, I've been lucky to be at the helm of this department. And it has been a much more visible role than I expected, but one that has afforded me the opportunity to have a voice and yeah. be in the room and be part of these conversations when new issues come up or old issues that rear their their head. So when these issues came up, it was thankfully much more seamless for, for me to be voicing my opinion and... um you know, talking to leadership about what we think we needed to do and how we needed to further insert the NFL into the conversation. I will say, though, that really it starts at the top for us. And Commissioner Goodell really had the, you know, the vision to make this, you know, bold statement and commitment of of resources um, because he was confident that we would get there, that we would be able to do this, that, you know, confident in the generosity of his of our owners and of our clubs that we would be able to do this and that there was a a level of commitment from all layers of the organization to continue this journey of fighting for social justice. So it, you know, it was, um, at the time, if you recall, we were all home because COVID was raging. So, you know, in old times, we were sitting around a room and we there was no sitting around any rooms. I was at my parents' house uh, where I lived for a couple of months during the, the height of the pandemic in New York. Didn't we all? Didn't we all? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, uh, it was a lot of phone calls and Zooms, right? And, yeah. you know, just kind of like, all right, what do we do? What do we do next? What do we do now? Yeah. Um, late nights and early mornings and a lot of weekends. So that's really what it was. Um, you know, people who had been working on these issues with us. Um, and thankfully at that part, at that point, because we had been working on social justice for a couple of years, we had players that we could call and grant partners yeah. that we could reach out to and people that we could rely on for guidance to help us make some of these decisions in a really tough yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. So the 2014 Ray Rice, you know, again, I'm, I'm an avid NFL fan. Um, it was a heartbreaking time. And I think there was a paralysis by, um, you know, a, a lot of, you know, people got kind of quiet. Um, it, that was a hard thing to see, it, you know, as a woman in an, in, in an organization that's pretty male dominated. Personally, how did you feel about the, the Ray Rice, you know, event 
and and maybe some conversations that you wanted to accelerate that weren't happening. And also the second part of the question is you mentioned um, through the generosity of the team owners and the players in 2020, you all were able to re kind of triple down on your efforts. I know those things don't happen in a vacuum. There certainly there had to have been resistance, right? And, and what did that look like? Yes, it is, uh, you know, it is hard to be in any organization, I would say, when you feel like you are under attack or you're in the middle of a crisis or you're being challenged. People deal with that in different ways and it's it's stressful. Um, I think, you know, for us in 2014, there were certain things that we just didn't know mm-hmm. about domestic violence and about sexual assault that I think a lot of people didn't know. Yeah. And I think it was at that point that we realized the type of expectations or the level of expectations that society, our fans, everyone had on us. And I think while we always understood that we had a platform and that we were, uh, it was that it was incredibly important to use that platform for good. Yeah. I don't know that we fully realized the the level of um, expectations and responsibility that came with that. Mm-hmm. And I know for sure that we, you know, generally speaking, didn't have a deep understanding of some of these issues. And so it took us taking a step back and admitting that and then going on an essentially a national tour to meet with experts and to talk to people, you know, from every different type of organization and field to really think through what can, you know, how can we take this really big problem and take ourselves and be on the other side of it and try to be part of the solution. And, you know, we went through several months of, really trying to learn and understand. And at the same time that we were doing that, trying to play a season, trying to educate our, our uh, player population and our staff, trying to dig out of a public relations hole. Um, And, you know, it, it, we were under a lot of pressure and a lot of stress, but I, I personally, I, I'm okay in that environment, right? I yeah. I am used to being very busy. I think my I work best under stress. Um and you know, there were a, a lot of of days without that much uh, eating on my end. Um no doubt. But it was but it was before children, so that was good. Um and you know, you just kind of got to get it done, right? Like I really yeah. believed that we could play a role in helping on these issues. And, you know, I think we have, I, I think, you know, we're, we're now one of the largest corporate funders of domestic violence and sexual violence in the country. Yeah, um, yeah. Many people don't realize that, that we have re- maintained that commitment from 2014 through today. Um, we just okay. actually hosted a board meeting for no more all day today in our offices. Um, one of the first organizations we partnered with in 2014 after that yeah. incident. So, um, what was the, org- what's the organization? No more. No more. 
Oh, yeah. Okay. So we did a series of PSAs with them over the years. And one of their co-founders, Jane Randall, is one of our domestic violence advisors. And so they were, you know, they were in the building today, right? I mean, this is an yeah. ongoing yeah. body of work for us. And I think that is part of what we do. We commit to something. We commit to it for the long term. And that means it doesn't always mean commercials. It doesn't always mean yeah. bringing it to the field, but it's sometimes it's doing things behind the scenes that aren't public that most people don't know about, Yeah. but yeah. helping the field to make strides. And I think, um, I think one of the, one of the interesting things is how do you stay focused on issues when you're not in crisis? Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your, to yeah. your question that people weren't always agreeing and how do you sort of get people aligned? Well, when you're in crisis, it's, it's somewhat easier to get people aligned because you got to do something, right? <laughs> right, right. Right. So that part was actually not that hard. The hard part is a year later, two years later, three years later, when things are going well and you're moving on yeah, to true. convince people that these issues haven't left and that they're still incredibly relevant and that it's still important to be as strong as you were on these issues when you were in crisis. That's a really great point. It's there's no one and done. It you know let you, to your point, no more was in the building today. It has to be ongoing, and um, that that's that's incredible. You know, you said before something that really resonates with me. You said when the Ray Rice event happened, you there was so much you didn't know, and there were you know obviously so much uh, society didn't know. Um, if you had to say kind of top line through the education process as you got as you all you know kind of course corrected gut checked yourself and said we got to get this right what do you think because you know the NFL has access to i arguably more hearts and minds in America than anybody the any you know any organizational body you have access to those hearts and minds if you had to say what the top line takeaway that your fans and your players and the wider ecosystem of the NFL learned that you learned and, 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 you know, extended kind of that knowledge and understanding to them, what is it? I would say two things. I would say, one, just how pervasive the issues are. Mm-hmm. Totally uh, underestimated. Yeah. So, so just how pervasive the issues are throughout all demographics, religions, races, socioeconomic status. Do you have any stats off the top of your head? Just to, because I, I, well, it's, it's really one in four, uh, women have been impacted by inter- intimate partner violence. And, um, in some places, and it sometimes that stat I've heard has gone to one in three, right? So it's really incredible numbers. You're talking about volume. Yeah. And so that was the first thing really just how common this is. And the second thing is, just how complicated it is. And some of the things that might seem obvious, Mm -hmm. some of the questions that people have asked over the years, like why do people stay in Mm -hmm. abusive relationships? Why, why is it hard to leave? Why don't people just leave? What, you know, I think understanding how love complicates things Yeah. Um, I think was a, a really big learning and continues to be a learning, right? Each one yeah. of these situations is unique because relationships are unique. Yeah. And, and economic power within a household. Yeah. Yes. Right. I mean, right. that, I mean, listen, I think understanding that, that this is about power and control 
mm-hmm. um, is something that a lot of us learned. But the other thing that we were taught by experts is that you've got to keep teaching this information over and over again. That kind of teaching once or telling people once about these issues doesn't really make it go away. You've got to inform and educate and keep reminding. And so we educate every year. I can't believe it, but we're literally working on our ninth year of custom education for the NFL family. And every year we do something a little bit different, but we're reinforcing those same original concepts that we talked about, about what is DVSA, how prevalent it is, what are the common misconceptions, what to do if you find yourself in a situation. We are repeating that every single year um, because we know how important it is. And we've heard from experts that it just has to be done over and over again and why it's so important that we stay in this space. And I think that you know, that has, um, it's been an example for us that we've been able to now take into other cause realms. So learnings that we took from our work in domestic violence, we've been able to apply certain things to elements of our social justice campaign, right? Obviously, they're they're very different issues. um, But certain learnings about you know, staying in the space and being proximate to the issues and um, just understanding the complexities around these various topics, I think is something that we were able to learn from our work um, from 2014 and 2015 and really carry it through with us to some additional, some other uh, causes and issues that we've taken on as an organization. That's fantastic. Yeah, you've you've made your blueprint, lessons learned. You know how to operationalize um, the education piece and and staying in that lane. And you know, I've, you've got new players coming into the league every year. And um, you know, the thing about you know, I've been in the entertainment industry for a long time, and um, you know, to get someone to remember a song, uh, I think there was a study years ago that said people don't, it doesn't impact them until they've heard it like 35 times. Oh, and wow. then on the 35th listen, they might say, oh, what is that song? I like that. And they've already heard it 34 times. And the same goes with, you know, messaging and education around these really important sensitive topics, which, you know, it has to become part of the nomenclature and 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 the culture. And I'm, you know, so it's so incredible that y'all are doing that work. Um, I want to, I want to, ask you you're again you're just fascinating i want to know what your first job was did you work in the in the stationary paper store well you know first job it just depends how far you really want to go back but all the um, way all the way back first job if you're going really all the way back we're talking about you know babysitting and all camp counselor and all that kind of stuff but um nice you know i graduated from college a couple of months before 9-11 Oh, my goodness. And that, you know, was such a crazy time to be in New York. And so I had um, thought I was doing the right thing by graduating from school. And I said to myself, I worked so hard to get through college. I'm going to take the summer off. I'm going to start looking for work August, September. And um, and then I got a job. And, and so I sold souvenirs uh, for... Well, I sold souvenirs for many years outside Yankee Stadium, but I I sold souvenirs throughout the summer just to make some extra money out in the Bronx. And and then 9-11 happens. And so all the job prospects that I had um, thought were possible really just were gone. And, you know, I I was 20 
one twenty-two, and my parents were sad. We don't want to go into Manhattan, stay in Brooklyn. And um, I, I sold, so I sold souvenirs outside Yankee Stadium through. They had, if you remember, they had uh, made it all the way to the World Series that year, and so I was, I was employed oh, yeah. through um, early November. Uh, and then I, I, you know, but so selling souvenirs was really a pretty early job for me, and that got me my job at the Brooklyn Cyclones selling souvenirs for a minor league baseball team. So here I am. I went to college. I got a degree. I wrote my thesis. And I literally, like, the thing that got me my first job was um, the fact that I knew how to measure someone's hat by looking at their, you know, head. Uh, And so, you know, I spent a lot of time selling souvenirs in a mall in Brooklyn, sitting in a cart and um, thinking I wanted to be in sports, but this is not exactly what I wanted to do. Um, But you know, it, it, uh, it was a great experience. So yeah. Yeah. So, so selling souvenirs is really, uh, really a thing for me. I, I, I love it. You, you found your way. It's just, it's remarkable. You, you, you founded the Brooklyn baseball gallery. Is that, is that a, that's, is that a museum? Yes. The Jackie Robinson. Yes. So the Brooklyn baseball gallery was the small museum that they essentially what happened was uh, this was a museum that was in the works. The Cyclones had just been incorporated as the first uh, professional team back in Brooklyn since the Dodgers. Yeah. And part of that, they were, the city was going to run this small museum. And then 9-11 happened and there was no one to run the museum in the city. And so they asked the Cyclones and the Mets organization to take it on and they had no one to do it. And I was selling souvenirs and so they said, why don't you shift over and become a curator and run it? You can a- do it. And I can do, do it. That. That's fine. Right. So um, I said, of course, because that's, you know, I, that's what I loved doing. And it was my first full-time job opportunity to get benefits. And I could live five minutes from um, my job and, and drive to the stadium, you know, in a time where the city was reeling. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it, um, it was a really unbelievable opportunity. To be honest, it was really incredible, and I, I had really never considered working in minor league baseball before. But you know, you do everything in minor league baseball, right? I did right. Uh, national right. anthem tryouts and mascot tryouts, and we ran, you know, we ran around parks in Brooklyn trying to sell tickets, and you, yeah. you did everything. So it really gives you a good perspective and um, keeps you grounded and humble, uh, and that's really you know what it's all about. Yeah, I mean, minor league ball is you do have to wear so many hats. Um, I just got back from Nashville. I had to run to Nashville for a friend's funeral, and um, I ran by the Nashville Sound Stadium, um, our minor minor league team there. And baseball is kind of part of the evening, but it's the it's the interaction with the crowd, and it's you know the national anthem, t-shirts into the stands. It's really, I love minor league ball. It's so fun. And, no, and, it was yeah. it was incredible, and I didn't, you know, I was not a football fan, really, right? I mean, I was a, I was a sports fan, so I was always into the cultural elements of other sports, not just baseball. But when the job opened up at the NFL, um, I really, you know, wasn't wasn't sure if it was going to be a match. Um, but what I realized starting at the league after coming from a small team in Brooklyn is. I could really do what I had started to do in Brooklyn, but do it on this scale where the yep. whole country was noticing and paying yeah. attention and could be impacted by the work. And that, you know, that's what keeps me and drives me now is really that idea that 
the work that we're doing, people see it, right? Oh, it's, it's, 100%. they notice they are looking for it. And the, the efforts that we make while people spend a lot of time criticizing us, we are, we're able to impact people in a way that many other brands are not. And that I don't take for granted, right? right. That's the ability to shift opinions, to make people aware of important messages, to try to impact important causes and actually know that the work you're doing is reaching people is something that uh, kind of stays with you. And it's hard to get that out of your system once you, you've had a, a you know taste of it. Right. And it, that's why it sounds to me like it's hard for you to close your laptop at night. Not, you know, and now I think your mom and kids, you know, I know your mom and kids will keep you, um, cause you to close your laptop uh, a little earlier um, than before you had kids. But I know this work keeps you up at, um, at night in good ways and bad ways. And so you mentioned when the job opened up at the league. Um, that sounds pretty magical. How, what did that look like? Did they come after you? Did they recruit you? Oh, no, you? they did not come after me. Um, no, I I thought I was sending my resume into like the black hole of NFL.com, actually. Um, I didn't know anyone. I had no connections. And yeah. someone in my old office had seen the position and said, this looks like, it, you know, maybe you'd, you'd want to apply for this. So um, I, you know, I, I, I don't, really know how I got the job, to be honest. I think uh, I think they liked that I had experience with a team. Yeah. I just don't think they realized that like a minor league short season single A baseball team is very different from an NFL football team, but that's fine. Yeah. Um, that's fine. And um, make it till you make it. The, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so, yeah, so that's, I got the job really randomly, to be honest. Uh, and I know that doesn't happen very often. And people um, who are coming up in the sports industry often ask me sort of how, what my path was. And it's hard for me sometimes because I, um, I, I didn't have like a, what I think is like a normal path, right? I mean, it's like, you know, now yeah. you can, you can study this in school. You can, you can right. get an undergraduate degree, you can get a graduate degree. You could, um, you know, intern in all various different places and the sports industry is just booming. And there's so many different companies you can work with or work for where you are involved in sports, but not necessarily at a team or at a league. And I, I just didn't, I didn't realize that um, at the time and it didn't exist like it does today. So, you know, it was a very different path. Um, but I don't think one that I would change. I think it's uh you know, to, to do this work and to be grounded in, in philanthropy and the community aspects, it was good to sort of roll up my sleeves and work hard and, um, work long hours and, um, yeah. you know, have those sort of humble roots selling souvenirs in the mall. Yeah. I mean, I love that your story took a, a bunch of side roads and, you know, isn't a textbook case study that uh, is, you know, taught in school. This is how you do it. This is how you get to the position. Um, it, it's illustrative of having a passion and just finding a way. You made a way. There wasn't a way. There wasn't a lane that said, if you if you get on this road and walk it, you're going to end up at, at the NFL affecting Again, hearts and minds of of American culture and beyond um, to really drive positive change. I kind of, I kind of just am, uh, am in love with the fact that you just put your sh head down and you you did anything you could 
could do and had to do to get here. It's um, it's a it's a great story. I I, I want to ask you about diversity inside of the league, right? So it's a you know we've got men playing, we've got some couple of women uh, in the coaching uh, positions. It's starting to happen. Um, Katie Sowers, I think she's I think she's now with the Chiefs organization. We've got, we've um, got several and, several women coaches. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me. I know Katie is also part of the queer community, which which is exciting. Um, t- talk to me about the composition of, as you said before, the NFL family in terms of you know gender. What does it look like right now? You know, I would say we've made a lot of progress uh, since I started. You know, I have not, to be honest, I have never felt like the NFL is is a place that's not open or welcoming for women just hasn't been my it hasn't been my experience um doesn't mean there haven't you know there aren't moments that you experience and go through throughout your career um but I you know the NFL is has been a place that since I was here was really thinking about how to find more positions and more women to be in senior roles. And it took time, but we have made significant progress in that front. Definitely it's, it's slow progress. And I think, you know, I think we just announced our third female official um, on field official for the game. We have women in in, uh, front office positions in football administration and scouting coaches. Um, So, you know, I think, and in ownership now too, um, which is incredible. So I think it's, we've made a lot of progress in this space. You know, it's football. There's certainly a lot of men uh, and, you know, that's okay. I think for me and what I tell people is you've got to be confident in your space. And if you're in a room where you are given an opportunity to be there, then try to be there and have a voice and speak up and, use that opportunity to the best of your ability. Um, you know, we've made a lot of progress as a league, I think overall on, on DEI, we've got a lot of work to do. Um, you know, when I, for about a decade, I was co-chair of our diversity council here, which was sort of a, a, I would say an extracurricular type of position that, that, um, I did. And we helped start, uh, employee resource groups at the NFL. And the first one yeah. was the Women's Interactive Network, which was our, our women's um, affinity group. And what now year we've was got, that? That what, was what uh, t- 2011. Um, and now we've got seven uh, employee resource groups, and we actually have a, a full-time DEI staff. We've got a chief diversity officer at the NFL, um, wow. you know, who has yeah. a team. And so, you know, there's been a lot of progress. Obviously, there's stories in the news and and you know, an area that I know that we're incredibly focused on is is increasing um, opportunities for black head coaches and general managers. We've got events coming up even next week and, and you know, throughout the season around this issue. But um, I do think it's it's the topic around the league that we spend the most time on. Yeah, that that's great to hear. Um, you know, as I, as you know, I'm with the uh, global design strategy, design delivery. You know, we're co- a construction company. We build, um, you know, office spaces and life sciences spaces around the globe. And and you know, it's 
it's you know it's not dissimilar to my old world of country music and that it's not known to be pretty very inclusive and diverse just by nature of just how the business ha- has historically functioned and what's excited me Anna is just creating a space where everyone knows hey we're going to get in here we're going to lean into it we're going to mess up we're going to have to course correct Um, We're not coming after you. You know, straight white men are not under siege. We're really, really trying to move the dial. And and, you know, I I'm I'm imagining that you put your head on the pillow every night with a, a huge sense of gratification when people on your team are able to say LGBTQ without, you know, without, you know, stumbling on it or talking about black and brown issues. And, um, you know, it's it's the fact that you launched your women's group in 2011. Uh, that's a big deal in the NFL. I think that is incredible. And and so when you came aboard and 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 were part of the diversity council, um, what did that look like? You mentioned it was extracurricular. Is that work people who are engaged in that now? I know there's a DEI staff and a chief diversity officer, but when your NFL family are spend their time doing ERG work, is it seen as part of their remit? Or is it seen as extracurricular activity? I mean, now I would say it's a little bit of both. But, you know, back five, ten years ago, it was definitely like in your spare time and all your free right. time. If yeah. you want to be a culture carrier for the organization, come do this. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there was certainly a small group of us. We were always looking for more people to to want to step up. Um, I think it's one of the reasons why I had the title of co-chair for a decade is because there was nobody who wanted to, you know, Anna come will and, do it. Take, take on the, right. the work. Um, but, you know, now I think there's much more of an understanding that, you know, this is, it's, it's important, you know, it, the importance goes deeper and beyond just sort of the culture of the organization, which of course is incredibly important, but it's just about, you know, it's good for our business and, yep. you know, it's incredibly important, obviously for our employees. And so, it is, it, it has changed, I would say. Yeah. Um, you know, we used to call them affinity groups. Now we call them ERGs or employee resource groups. And there, it's just a little bit more tied into the business. Yeah. Um, and they have more of a role in, you know, shaping kind of our communications internally and sometimes yeah. externally too. And I think that's really, you know, that's really important, right? And I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's enabled us. We had, um, we established our pride group. How many years ago now? It's been a while. It's several years ago. Um, but right. having, you know, a group of engaged employees um, focused on LGBTQ issues and bringing them to light was something we had never had before at the NFL. And it has enabled us to, you know, have people that we can go to when things come up right away. And we had, yeah. you know, our, the first player, active player in the NFL come out last year and, and having Amazing. an engaged pride ERG uh, you know, enabled us to sort of jump into action right away and to to engage and amplify that moment in a really authentic way for the organization. That was it was really powerful. And you know, as again, as a kid who grew up in Kansas, a young queer kid, being able to, you know, when the NFL and and agencies and organizations and brands take on um, causes that are you know uh, uh, around queer issues, I it makes me just makes me fall in love all over again because. 
at some point when agencies or brands aren't speaking out for you, you know, we kind of internalize it as they're working against us. And so when the, you know, when the NFL did begin to really talk about queer issues, I, I, I doubled down. I went, you know, I bought more jerseys. I bought more tickets. Mm-hmm. I just, it matters. It really does matter. Did you see um, our football is for everyone spot? I did. Should, yeah. I did. I did. I'm a big fan. You know, I, I'm good friends with one of your colleagues over there at the NFL, uh, Pete. And, um, you know, when whenever there's movement or communications internally or externally around these issues, he, he fires them over to me and uh, makes me, you know, really proud. Um, I, I do want the, one of the funny stories I read uh, is about when you first joined the NFL, you baked cookies and brought cookies. I want to. <laughs> I don't I, I don't mean to revisit something that's painful. Okay. I'm not saying you're not a good cook. I want to know um, – I think the cookies were uh, well appreciated, but I want to know what your takeaway was from that experience as you've shared it publicly about the – yeah, the cookie event. Yeah. You know, I had come from a really small organization where there was about 15 of us and we were incredibly tight and close and they were my friends. Right. And we spent – you know, we had – nine inning games or 15 inning games, right? And you spend hours and hours with these people. And so coming to the NFL, I, it's kind of what I expected as a sports organization, but the NFL league office, I wasn't at a team, right? I was in a corporate environment in the middle of Midtown Manhattan in a big building. Yeah. And it wasn't like that. People went to their cubicles. They went to their offices. They, you know, it was much more competitive, um, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and um, tons of type A people who were trying to get ahead. And are you type A? I am certainly type A, I will admit, but I, I, you know, had come from a different environment. Right. And, and so I did try some interesting approaches to making friends and to lightening people up a little bit, you know, it's football. It should be fun. We should have fun with each other. You should throw the ball around. You should want to be at the office, right? I worked at a stadium. Like we had, I pulled up to a stadium by a beach. Like we had fun and, you know, it wasn't as fun to be honest when I started here. And so, you know, part of that was trying to meet people and show the humanity um, of who I was, right. And bring that to my colleagues and, you know, that, you know, sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. Um, But there are, you know, actually recently I had a colleague of mine who's still here who said, oh, it was during the pandemic. We missed you bringing in all the cookies it used to bring in for one of the Jewish holidays. Um, You know, and so I was like, you're right. I haven't done that. And I went to the store. Was it It was Hamantashen. Yes. And I went to the store, you know, a couple of days later, the holiday was over already, but they still had a box and I brought it in and, you know, but so, so it stuck with some people, right? Like, and and people remember this stuff and I've got a sticker on my desk now. It just says human first. So, you know, when you come in and you sit down, that's what you see, right? It's, it's, we're, we're often behind a computer and we're working hard and, but we work for a sports league and we're doing yeah. good work and we're trying yeah. to make people's lives better. And I want people to remember that when they're engaging with, with me, when they're engaging with our team, you know, that we are, you know, we are humans first, we are people first. And that's what I think enables us to do our jobs and continue to do our jobs, which is really all about engaging and unifying people and bringing them together, you know, through the NFL. Right. So yeah. I think we try to keep that front and center all the time. And it gets hard when times are rough. But, um, 
you know, I try as much as I can and with our team too, to just, you know, have empathy and, and be human. Yeah. Yeah. And, and no doubt you do. Um, you're making a huge impact. Um, would you, would you say that, you know, you said when you got there, it was less fun than the minor leagues, of course. Would you say that the NFL has kind of, kind of lowered your expe- expectations of fun? Do you feel more corporate? Um, do you think it's toughened you up or do you think you've softened the NFL? The NFL has definitely helped me grow a thicker skin. I will say that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. definitely have a thicker skin than when I began here. And that's, you know, from going through some tough periods and challenging issues. And, um, you know, I think, I think that will help me down the road, but yeah. I definitely yeah. have a thicker skin. Listen, I, I don't want to take credit for softening the NFL. I would love to think that maybe I've played a small role in, um, having the NFL feel a little bit more human and um, more personal and taken on some real issues that mean a lot to the everyday people who are our fans. Yeah. You know, whether that's, you know, through launching our breast cancer campaign, you know, all the way through our domestic violence and to our social justice work. So, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think, you know, the NFL is, it is a corporate place. It's challenging. It's still challenging. And there's, you know, people here who are smart and who, you know, our, our mantra is like, we are, it's, we're never like satisfied, right? We are always pushing, always looking to, to take things to the next level, you know, happy with if something went well, but then right away, like, how do we make it better? How do we keep going? No complacency, not stagnant. And, you know, that, is amazing, right? But it's challenging to stay at that pace. And and so I do think we've become um, an organization that is has a little bit more of understanding of everyone's um, personal experiences, yep. that they bring their whole self to work, you know, that yeah. they're, they can't leave their, their personal experiences and what's going on in their lives completely behind them when they walk through these doors. Yep. You know, I don't think that's me. I think that's, you know, we've all been through it hell of a lot over the last couple of years. Um, and I think it's you. (laughs) I I mean, I think you are, you are their cultural, not only uh, you're, you're their mascot. And from what I understand, the commissioner really, um, depends on your council. Um, and that you have, uh, it was said about you, um, that she, um, sometimes she, well, what was it? Uh, when she believes in something, she can test your patience sometimes. But most of the time, she's right. She understands how to communicate and influence the key senior staff in the office, including the commissioner. He probably sometimes hates to see you walk through his door, right? <laughs> yes. But but at the end, talk to me a little bit about your relationship with the commissioner. You know, I, I'm really fortunate. I get to do some really amazing things with the commissioner, right? Like I, I am taking him along to charitable events and scheduling things for him to do where he's giving back and interacting with players. And, you know, just this week, right? He, he was in Buffalo, um, mm-hmm. giving back to the community there who's gone through this horrific shooting. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's, we've been in the trenches together going through some really tough, challenging issues, right? Some of the hardest yeah. things that our country's been through over the last decade and a half. So I think that's built uh, a, a pretty good trust, 
you know, between us. And doesn't mean, like you said, that he's always happy to to see me <laughs> on certain occasions. But um, I think I I'd like to think that he he knows that I have the the NFL's best interests at you know at heart, and it's yeah. always top of mind. And um, that I'm it's coming, you know, what I, the advice or the guidance I'm giving him is coming from an honest and true place without a personal agenda. Yeah. Um, and I think we've been through enough that that there's that kind of mutual trust there that we have. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, he, we can laugh and we can joke and he, you know, we rib each other sometimes, but I think yeah. that's, that's okay. Right. Um, that comes Absolutely. after 16 years of, of work. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Uh, this is a little bit of a crazy question, but I, I, I've been thinking it for the past 20 minutes and I'm going to ask it. Do you think you'll be the commissioner of the NFL one day? No. Why wouldn't you want the job? It, you know, it is an incredibly challenging um, job, and it is um, it is a public, really public job, like um, a poli- like a politician, right? Yeah, and and listen, I I have a lot to learn, um, and a lot of departments that I'd have to go, you know, go through and seek to, to actually feel like I was ever going to be qualified to have that type of position. But, you know, I've always wanted to be behind the scenes, right? I mean, I, I, I thought I was going to do sports casting and sports journalism, and then I did it and I hated it, right? I was anxious and thought the anxiety would go away and it just didn't. Right. And yeah. so I, yeah. I said, I don't, I just, I want to find something in sports that allows me to, to really feel that passion, but kind of do it from behind the scenes. I found that in community relations, it's a little bit more public than I thought it would be yeah. Yeah. You know, when I started, but it's kind of just where I needed to be. Right. It, yeah. It's that's, you know, I'm much, uh, I think better suited, uh, for that type of role. And, um, you know, it's a, it is a job that, you know, it's, you're many different things when you're a commissioner, right? And it, you're a yeah. business leader and you're like a nonprofit leader and you're, you know, a politician and you're all of these things. And, um, it's a you're really, also a target. Really, you're also a yeah, target yes, for just yes. the incoming. And yes, that, in, yes. that incoming is, um, frequent, you know, as you talked about before, you, you'll be celebrating a triumph. Look what we accomplished. And then the next day you've got a, you know, you've got a crisis situation on your hands. All right. It's, but I'm just saying if one day you are the commissioner, I will be glad. You'll let me say I told you so, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's fine. But I'm telling you, it's not going to be. <laughs> Fabulous. Hey, I, I I know we're coming to the end of our time, but I, I've, I've got some fun questions that we that we like to dig into on Groundbreakers. First one is, what's your weird, Anna? What is the thing that I was never going to be able to Google and find about you? What's a factoid that I, I don't know and can't find on the internet that would surprise me about Anna Isaacson? Well, there's probably a few. I mean, one is certainly that I've spent 30 years in therapy. That's certainly one. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, probably not out there too much on Google. Well, maybe now it will be. Um, 30 yeah. Years. So 30 plus years. Yeah. In therapy, did, did you begin? You mentioned anxiety. Did you? Mm-hmm. Is that why mm-hmm. you began going? Yeah, yeah, as a kid, as a kid. Um, so it's been just something I've carried with me, you know, th- through my 
through my life, right? And ebbs and flows, um, as I think mental health, uh, issues do for most people. But, um, but yeah, so, and I, and actually, um, I think something that, and a lot of people say this, I think, but something that probably started off as being something I was insecure about to something that, um, I feel really proud of. Wow. It's kind of your superpower to be able to be on a podcast and say, that's my thing. Like how friggin' empowering is that? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, um, you know, as a teenager or as a young adult, right, it's something you're a little bit more embarrassed about if you've got insecurities or you're anxious or there are things going on. And so that was certainly me. I've, you know, and I think as an adult, what I've realized in this role is that all of those experiences have helped me become an empathetic person and mm-hmm. um, help me do the job that I do. And sort of understanding myself helps me understand people and the way people think. And, you know, I, I don't not, you know, if I had to go back over again, I would, I don't think um, choosing anxiety is a great, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great uh, existence if you can avoid it. But, um, right. But if you address it and, you know, I do think there are some really important lessons that I've learned from it that have helped me in my personal life and helped me in my career that I wouldn't trade. You know, I'm so glad you're talking about it. You might, one of my sons, um, I love that people are sharing more about anxiety and mental health. Um, you know, again, I mentioned I've got identical twin boys who are nine years old, and um, one of them began having panic attacks around Christmas. So it was a combination of our nanny got sick. The new, you know, people are talking about COVID a lot. They hadn't been socialized as much as they should have been because we were home for school. And we happened to be on the sidewalk in New York and there was a shooting. And we had to run, my wife and I had to run and grab our boys and go into a bodega and hide. And shortly after that, he began having panic attacks. I've never had one in my life, but I know enough about them through my, my child to know that he literally thought he was dying. And the process through, you know, a feelings doctor that we talked to him about. And and now he said, I need to see the feelings doctor. Watching this kid so courageously have this book. It's like a book of tools of what to do and how to manage it. And he put his book in his backpack and he had the courage because people like you and others are sharing their anxiety stories and, you know, normalizing it because it is normal. He was able to take his book to his teacher and say, can you take me in the hallway? We need to read a couple pages of this. Mm. And he is that it happened for six weeks, Anna. It was the it was the most difficult six weeks of parenting my child because watching him be in crisis mode every day, all all day long was really painful. So Thanks for talking about it and, and sharing that. That's amazing. Yeah. No, thank, yeah. I mean, listen, I think, you know, having a traumatic experience like that, right? I mean, it's no wonder, right? I mean, it's not, you know, and teaching our kids that that makes sense, that that's okay, right? And um, that, that it this was really hard and, and not being ashamed of that, I think, is, is something people are really talking about and yeah. all of us having lived through COVID and, you know, my son was four when it when it all started and kind of having gone through this process with him, um, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about feelings and trying to get words out and say things that will make us feel better. And, and, you know, I think it impacts everybody in different ways, but, um, you know, these issues are going to be around for a long time and they're impacting more people than ever. So people better get used to hearing about it and talking about it. For sure. And, 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 you know, 
one of the things we we can't do with young people or anyone, frankly, is say, well, that's unrealistic. You're panicking about something that's not real. He was panicking about COVID that's real and about a guy getting shot on the sidewalk where we were. And so I can't tell him, oh, that's never going to happen again. Like it happened. Right. And as a parent, it's really these conversations are really hard. I can't say it's in your imagination. It really happened. And um, no, to your point, we are going to be reckoning, dealing with the ravages of COVID and, you know, the polarization that we're experiencing right now. Uh, We better buckle up because because it's coming at us. All right. Mm-hmm. So next, next, next thing I'm going to uh, ask you about. We call it the fire round. Um, I'm going to ask you five questions. Don't spend a lot of time thinking about them. Here they come. Do you believe in ghosts? No. Who do you text with the most? No, my mom. What's your favorite show to binge watch? Law and Order. Me too. Me too. But I don't watch a lot of TV, so that's an easy one for me. But the great thing about SVU is like you can find it at any time. It's always on. And you you don't have to know anything about what's happening. You turn it on and you're in. Do you collect anything? Uh, Not anymore. Not anymore. As a young person, I, I collected memorabilia, baseball things, autographs, different things like that. Um, newspapers from sort of historical moments in time. Um, but once I had kids, no. <laughs> right. You needed room for a battleship. Exactly. Um, number five, if you could take a walk and talk with anyone alive or deceased, who would it be? I probably would be Jackie Robinson. Did you happen to know Diana Rodriguez when you worked closely with the Jackie Robinson, you know, organization? I know her now. I know yeah. her now. I did not know her then, but I, we just actually had a call with her because we were supporting the Stonewall uh, nice. you know, Museum and Visitor Center. So I do know her, but but not from those days. That's um, She has been, she was an ally and a champion and a mentor of mine that one of the few people that helped me come out. So she um, she was part of GLAD at the time. And um, I am a Stonewall ambassador, excited to say. Um, but she's a she's a fine, fine lady. I, I thought you might know one another. Here's, here's my last uh, inquiry. If I could, I would dance and draw. What's your if I could, I would? I would sing a lot. I would sing I can... a lot. I would um, make music sing places <laughs> I would sing better um, I, can, I can help you with that yeah that's what I would do I would uh I would have followed that passion a little bit more can you sing a little a little not right. you know not as good as my parents think but <laughs> that's always the case um well I look forward to I, I want to maybe you and I should go do some karaoke maybe I do love karaoke Awesome. Awesome. Um, That's amazing. Hey, Anna, I promised you we wouldn't go over time. We did. I apologize. Thank you for the grace. Um, Thank you so much for making time for us um, to to talk about the NFL driving impact in communities, in the NFL family, you know, your journey to where you are today, um, the senior vice president of social responsibility for the NFL. I am so grateful that you joined us today, Anna. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. Appreciate you having me on. 
Thanks for tuning in to Groundbreakers, y'all. It's been a pleasure. A special thanks to the behind-the-scenes folks that share my passion and vision for our Groundbreakers series. Writer and producer, Caroline Jones. Engineer, Michael Pelliquin. And the Airs Next and Unispace teams. Despite the many ways our careers and lives may differ, we are all affected by how our environments impact diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. We all have so much to learn from one another, and I appreciate you taking this ride with me. Don't forget to subscribe to Groundbreakers. Tune in and share with your colleagues, your friends, and your families. Talk soon.